Um, there's a lot going on in this chapter. Um, I'm going to do something a little unconventional, I guess. I'm going to I'm going to read out of the Amplified Version. You can follow along because a lot of it's very similar, but there's some phrasing that Paul does in this letter that can seem a little bit confusing. Um, it's confusing enough that it's given form to a new doctrine uh, after he wrote it. There's some verses in here that the Calvinists use to justify... Um, their belief, so uh, it makes it a little bit um, interesting. Um, the main thing that, that I want to look at, or really the overarching view of this, is that God has a plan for his people. Uh, he's had it since the foundation of the world. Um, he's had it in order to bring Christ to us and to bring us all back into fellowship with him. And regardless of what happens, uh, it doesn't fail. Uh, he makes it, makes it happen just the way he wants it to. Um, this is an, a great chapter for us because it talks about how the Gentiles were brought in, uh, back into fellowship with God. It is a, um, a bad chapter in, in the sense that Paul mourns over the fact that his fellow Israelites um, have rejected God, and so therefore God has rejected them. So the thing that, um, that I wanted to talk or to do first is to uh, remember who Paul was writing to, and it was a church in Rome, a church that was made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And uh, I can imagine some of the sticky situations that were brought in by that, you know, when, when we think we are right to the point that we don't listen uh, to anyone else or open our hearts up to the truth, um, as the Israelites had done here, then uh, it makes for a very serious situation for them. Um, and so I'm sure there was a lot of discussion and feuds inner turmoil that went on in this church. I want to read uh, in Romans uh, 1 and verse 1, just to start off here, to, uh, to see what this letter addresses and who, who it addresses. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his, whole, through his prophets in the Holy Scripture, concerning his, his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of words in this opening statement in the first chapter of Romans, and now we're in, verse, in chapter 9, that Paul still will use. Um, the promise before of Christ. We're going to notice that. Um, grace, apostleship, called of Jesus, that's going to be something that, that is important in this chapter as well. So this chapter, as I said, focuses on a shift 
uh, of opening up God's mercy to the Gentiles and the rejection of Israel. So, um, so far in our study of Romans, Paul has pointed out repeatedly that Christ is the way of salvation uh, apart from the law. In John, the 14th chapter, and verse 6, it says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one cometh to the Father except by me. A statement from Christ himself. Um, he's made it clear that the gospel of Jesus Christ is available to all nations, not just Israel. In Matthew, the 28th chapter, beginning at verse 18, the opening phrase is there is, Go teach all nations. Um, that had not happened before. He has made clear that the law is ended and that the people are no longer slaves to the law but should be slaves to Jesus Christ. And that is uh, in Colossians 2 and verse 14 where we find the law was nailed to the cross. In Romans, um, the seventh chapter and verse 1, I want to read that uh, just as a way of, of some more of of this law being nailed to the cross. Do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound to her, bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if the husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is no adulteress, although she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that he should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. This was very difficult for the Jews to understand. They had been, for years, God's chosen people, and it was no secret. Um, they were told that. That's what God told them. They were His children. And He was with them uh, in their travels, and He was with them in the temple until... Um, after enough rejection of him by them, that um, things change for them. He also makes assurances that in Christ we're free from sin, uh, which the law could not do, and that nothing could take that away from the believer. Paul, in this verse in Romans 7, compares the ending of a law to something that they could relate to, the death of their spouse. So it was the death of the old law. They can now be married to the new covenant and... They will not be in sin. In Romans 8, Paul again emphasizes the importance of Christ. Uh, in Romans 8 and verse 1, it says, There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of the life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit would this not have been awesome news 
to you if you were serving the law, a law that could not be kept, a law that was impossible to forgive sins? Would it, looking back, it's easy to see this is, this is a blessing, but they were so wrapped up in who they were and the status that the law gave them, the works of the law, they couldn't let it go, and they couldn't receive the, the righteousness that God, or the mercy that God was trying to give them. In verse 38 of Romans 8, it says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, great news and a promise that goes beyond anything that they'd been given. Um, so now we want to, to step into Romans 9. Uh, we'll begin with verse 1 and read through verse 5. And this talks about Israel's rejection of Christ. Um, the thing that, that I want to point out is rejection here really stems from them rejecting God. It's not that God uh, has, has predetermined them to hell, that it is a rejection so that he can bring the whole world back. And, and more of a rejection, it's an acceptance of the Gentiles. Because the Jews still had the opportunity to come to Christ. So it's not a flat-out uh, bad deal for them, but it's a good deal for the Gentiles. So we'll begin with verse 1. I'm telling the truth in Christ, and, and again, I'm reading out of the Amplified Version. I'm telling the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me, enlightened and prompted by the Holy Spirit, that I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For if it were possible, I would wish that my, I myself were accursed, separated, or banished from Christ for the sake of the salvation of my brothers, my natural kinsmen, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, the glory or the Shechaniah, the light of the temple, the special covenants with Abraham, Moses, and David, the giving of the law, the system of temple worship, and to the original promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from them, according to his natural descent, came the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed, he who is exalted and supreme over all, God bless forever. Amen. On this side of the law, on this side of the cross, I should say, looking back, we can see how these things would have been a blessing to Israel, but we also can see the pride in the things that they were hanging on to. This talked about the Israelites to whom belongs the adoption. They were the first adopted uh, generation or, or nation, I should say, of God. He made a great nation of them. The special covenants that, he, they gave Abraham, that God gave to Abraham that included them. The giving of the law, they received that. The temple, the temple worship, the sacrifices, the original promises, they held great importance to the genealogy they had the patriarchs, they had Abraham, they had Moses, they had David. Um, 
but they didn't claim Christ. And he was promised all along. Paul states through the writings of the New Testament, we see it over and over, how proud he was to be an Israelite when he talked about his status um, as a Jew. He talks about that he was an Israelite of the Israelites. He was a Pharisee, that he was very uh, dedicated to that. And it's clear through his statements that he valued that heritage and that genealogy. God chose the children of Israel to be his people, but he chose them to be his people to usher in Christ. And it's something that they missed. Um, They were a part of his plan to reconcile everyone back to himself. You know, there's a lot of us that feel very passionate about our country. Uh, we're patriotic. We, we stand behind that. And, and I think Paul was proud like that of the Israelites, but he was not so proud that he could not see that the end of the law was there and the need to follow Christ. I guess it's, it's fair to say he had, a, he had a special circumstance. He had Christ appear to him on the road to Damascus. How could you, how could you turn that away? Um, and he didn't. In fact, he believed that the purpose of the law was to usher Christ in. So he goes from proclaiming Christ in the last chapter to grief over Israel. And he has grief over his fellow countrymen that he knows and that he has been associated with and that he loves. Even though when you look at at what Paul went through, they were determined to kill him many times, to lay traps for him, to set him up and to take his life. And yet, he opens this by saying, "If, if it were possible that I would be banished from Christ, I would do that for the sake of my fellow man, of, of my kinsmen. However, we know it's not possible. He's not the first to make that declaration. In the first time that Israel rejected God, in Exodus, um, we read there, it says, Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, You've committed a great sin. So now I will go up to the Lord Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin. Then Moses, sorry, I I went back to the first verse, and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, Whoever sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Now therefore go, lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron made. Paul had the same plea that Moses had for the children of Israel at Mount Sinai. You know, he wasn't gone that long. And they made a calf of gold. It was the first time that they rejected God. But God's, God went ahead. He didn't honor Moses' request there. They, he did punish the ones 
who did that for their sin. And Paul knows. Paul knew this story. And Paul knows that the Israelites that, re that reject Christ are going to be punished um, for their rejection. Beginning at verse 6 in Romans 9. It says, however, it is not as though God's word has failed, coming to nothing. For not all who are descended from Israel or Jacob are the true Israel. And they are not all the children of Abraham because they are his descendants by blood. This, this part of this reading is the main reason I wanted to use the Amplified Version. But the promise was, your descendants will be named through Isaac... Though Abraham had other sons, that is, it is not the children of the body, Abraham's natural descendants, who are God's children. But it is the children of the promise who are counted as Abraham's true descendants. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only that, but this too... Rebecca conceived twin sons by one man under the same circumstances by our father Isaac. And though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything either good or bad, so that God's purpose or his choice, his election, would stand, not because of works, neither done by either child, but because of the plan of him who calls them. It was said to her, The older, or Esau, will serve the younger, or Jacob, as it is written, and forever remains written, Jacob I loved, chose, protected, and blessed, but Esau I hated, held in disregard compared to Jacob. These words in the, in the New King James Version, which we have in our pew Bibles, talks about uh, Jacob... I have loved, Esau, I have hated. Now, some people will take a portion of this and say that this determined individual salvation, that God predetermined Esau to be lost, and that he predetermined Jacob to be saved, and they, they didn't have a choice in the matter. What it is, I believe, is... Uh, a call by God to show his power. Before these kids were born, before the scripture says, before they did anything good or evil, God said that Esau will serve Jacob. It's strong language when, when he says, when the scripture says, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. When you look at the circumstances of Esau's life, God blessed Esau. He had a, he had a lot put together. Uh, you'll remember when Jacob came back from Laban and he met Esau, he was very scared that Esau would kill him. Esau had a great number of people and of possessions. God had blessed him. So when, when we look at something, uh, a character of God or a statement that doesn't make sense compared to the other scripture, then we need to look closely at what actually has happened. God chose um, things beforehand by his foreknowledge. Uh, it doesn't mean that he uh, predestined, 
predestinated anyone to damnation. Uh, one of the things we also need to talk about is the purpose of election or God's sovereignty. Paul writes here about his plan, God's plan or purpose, and the rejection here of fleshly lineage. We're talking about genealogy in the nation, not spiritual Israel. Um, he wants people to understand that God's plan did not fail. Now, why would he say that? Because he talks about Israel being lost, and he talks about them being lost from a standpoint that they were God's children. God's children of promise are not the same as physical Israel, is what Paul's trying to say. In Galatians, the third chapter, and verse uh, 26... It says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is spiritual um, Israel. We are considered seed of Abraham when we accept Christ. Um, Christ, or Abraham's lineage brought Christ into the world and it was part of God's plan. Genealogy and birthright were a huge part of the old law. But Paul addresses the fact that there is a plan and God's going to make it happen even if it goes outside what is normal? Esau should have had the blessing from his dad, right? Well, we know that Esau sold his birthright. So that was no longer uh, what happened. Paul very pointedly states out here that because you're born an Israelite, we're going to call that a natural fleshly Israelite, that did not mean that you were automatically on God's spiritual side. Abraham had Ishmael, and Ishmael was not part of the lineage that led to Christ. Jacob had Esau, and, uh, I'm sorry, Isaac had Esau and Jacob. Esau was not a part of the lineage of Christ. So everyone that's born, uh, an Israelite, is not part of the promise. In Genesis, the 21st chapter, and verse 10 it says, Wherefore she said unto Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even Isaac. And the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. And God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of thy bondwoman. In all that Sarah has said unto thee, hearken unto her voice, for in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And also of the son of the bondwoman will I make a nation, because he is thy seed. And Abraham rose up early in the morning, and he took bread and a bottle of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder and the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And the water was spent in the bottle, and she cast the child under one of the shrubs. And she went and sat down over against him a good way off, as it were, a bowshot, for she said, Let me not see the death of the child. And she set him over against and lifted up her voice and wept. 
And God heard the voice of the lad, and the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven, and said unto her, What aileth thee, Hagar? Fear not, for God hath heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, hold him in thy hand, for I will make of him a great nation. So when the scripture talks about this hate between part of the lineage and the love between the other, we notice that when God makes of them a great nation, he still blessed that line of the family. Now, they were hated when they opposed his children. When they went to war, uh, you know that Esau's descendants were Edom. And Edom would not let the children of Israel pass through. And so there was great conflict over that. And in the end, um, they took them out. But um, the language here can be very confusing. As we said, Esau should have had Isaac's blessing, but he sold his birthright. In Genesis, the 27th chapter, it said, And Jacob sawed pottage, and Esau came from the field, and he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom. And Jacob said, Sell me this day thy birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I am at the point to die. What profit shall this birthright do to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he swore unto him, and he sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he did eat and drink, and rose up and went his way. And thus Esau despised his birthright. We'll look at this a little later, but just remember that God had a foreknowledge of how these people's hearts would be. We'll start again in in verse 14 of Romans 9. It says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice with God? So Paul talks about this accepting and rejecting of people, and then immediately he asks the question, Is there injustice with God? Certainly not. The thing that I love about part of this chapter is Paul asks all these questions, and then he turns around and answers them. So it's not like we have to dig. He said, is there injustice? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then God's choice is not dependent on human will nor on human effort, the totality of human striving, but on God who shows mercy to whoever he pleases. It is his sovereign gift, as is said in the Amplified Version. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, to display my power in dealing with you, and so that my name would be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he wills or chooses, and he hardens the heart of whom he wills. You know, God's plan still came about regardless of the fact that Esau uh, despised his birthright and he wanted to kill Jacob in the beginning, that because of that, Jacob ran into hiding and was gone for 20 years um, and had to go through what he did with Laban and, and the choice of his wife. God was not unrighteous because he chose Pharaoh to, shows his, to show his power in creating the plagues and make himself known. Sometimes God chooses people to show His glory through mercy. Sometimes He chooses people to show His glory through the hardness of that person themselves. 
In Exodus, the fifth chapter, this is the first time that Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh. They said, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. What's Pharaoh's response? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let them go. What was Pharaoh's character? God knew what his character was. He knew that the time to use that man to show his power and to let his people go was while he was in power. In this case, God used Pharaoh's hardness to show his power. In Exodus, the 33rd chapter, we show um, where he used mercy for someone to show his glory. And he said, this is Moses speaking, Please show me your glory. Then he said, I will make my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God, as creator of mankind, has the right to be merciful and gracious to who he will. Paul talks about God showing mercy, but he never talks about God predestinating someone to hell. When we look at the rest of the scripture in the, in the Bible, it goes against all of those. Yet, some people will take the language here and try to determine that God uh, made someone be evil. And I don't believe that's the case. I believe God used someone that was evil to show his power, but I don't believe that he made anyone choose the wrong path. We begin in verse 19, continuing in Romans 9. So it says, Because of this, you will say to me then, Why does he still blame me for sinning? For who, including myself, has ever resisted his will and purpose? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers arrogantly back to God and dares defy him? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does the potter not have the right over the clay to make the same lump of clay one object for honor and beautiful or distinctive and another for common use, something that is menial? Paul makes a statement and he, and he forms his own question of it and then he answers, why does he still find fault? Who's resisted his will? Who will reply against God or ask, why was I made this way? He finds fault because we have a choice. God gives us a choice. God may use us in our denial with him to prove a point, but he never makes us denying. God's never uh, not given a choice. We are sometimes lost to the fact, I think, that we're we are the creation. God is the creator. We are the creation. God's rules are what the creation follows. 
But Satan has uh, cleverly, I guess, come in and made us feel more important than we are. And where we can make statements like, why have you made me like this? Um, Who am I to obey you? Like Pharaoh said. There was another time, uh, and this is a little bit long reading, but I think it's, it's beautifully stated by God in Job. Job, the 38th chapter, beginning at verse 2. When God said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. God's talking to someone who had, had uh, the wrong ideas. Who stretched the line upon it? To what foundation is it fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and the sons of glory shouted for joy. Or who shut the sea with its doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. When I fixed my limit for the sea and set bars and doors. When I said, this, this far you may come, but no further. Do you wonder why the borders never change? The ocean never, never increases in size? It's because God said, this is as far as you're going to go. Have you commanded the morning since your day began? And caused the dawn to know its place? That it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It takes on form like clay under a seal and stands out like a garment. From the wicked their light withheld and up, upraised arm is broken. Have you entered the springs of the sea? Or have you walked in the search of its depths? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the breath of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. And he continues to expound on the wonderful things that he's done. The way the world is, the way the earth is, why it works like it works, the creatures that are here. And we sometimes forget and we question. We want to rise up against the knowledge of God and ask why and feel sorry for ourselves instead of giving glory to Him for what He's done in us. And this is the same problem that the Israelites had and that were unwilling to let go of the things that they were comfortable with. Beginning more in Romans 9 and verse 22, it says, What if God, although willing to show His terrible wrath and to make His power known, has tolerated with great patience the objects of His wrath which are prepared for destruction? And what if He's done this to make known his riches of glory to the objects of his mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory, including us, whom he has also called not only from among the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. So as humans, we like to think we're very gracious and that we are happy for other people to be shown mercy. But we know that that's not always the case. 
We have the par- power, parable of the workers, the laborers. You remember he called different people at different times of the day, and he said, I'm going to pay you what's right. And he started with the last ones that he called who had only worked a few hours. And he paid them as much as he did the first people that he called that worked all day. Were the people that he hired in the morning happy for the ones that only worked two hours and got the same amount of money? You see, our hearts are, are not generous to the point that we're happy when other people are blessed and given uh, more mercy than they deserve. And is that not what mercy is? Unmerited favor. I read this example. What if you were at work and on payday they hand out your checks and just because the boss wanted to be merciful to someone, they got an extra $500. And you're standing around looking at your checks and the guy talks and he says, wow, I got another $500. What's our reaction? Do we go to the boss and say, you made a mistake, where's my $500? Or are we happy for the guy who was shown unmerited favor that got an extra $500? So people raise questions. Now Paul has talked about here that God has used people such as Moses or such as Pharaoh to show his power. And then he says, what if God has done this? What if he's done this? He's used patience. He's abided with these people to make his glory known to you. Who are you to question God? And you know, that's exactly what happened. He did it to prepare to show his glory to those who didn't deserve it. In Romans, the second chapter, and verse 4, we know this principle from Scripture, and we've talk, we talk about it in, in our sermons. Do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering? Why? Because the Scripture goes ahead and says, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. So in this bearing with these vessels, he's giving them time to repent. God didn't, didn't care how, well, he did care how, and he made a point of, of making it known. And it should have been faith building that, that the people he chose beforehand fulfilled his purpose. But God's purpose was going to be fulfilled anyway do you remember in in uh oh esther the story of esther when the jews were being persecuted and they came and said she had the opportunity to go to the king and make um, a request for the jews that their lives would be spared but she was scared and it wasn't Haman. It was, the, it was her uncle, and I can't remember his name, but he said, 
You have been given the opportunity to do this. If you don't do it, God's going to have it done some other way. But do it. God will make His plan happen. But God will make a way happen when we refuse. You know, we can't be too critical because uh, the rejection of Israel has brought us in to the fold of God. We are the objects of mercy that is talked about here. We are the vessels of mercy. It's to our benefit that God chose to use Pharaoh. And He chose to use Judas to put Christ to death. It was for our benefit because now we have uh, Christ's blood that covers us. Continuing in verse 25, it says, just as he says in the writings of the prophet Hosea. Now he's going he's gonna to quote old scripture here to prove his point. I will call those who are not my people, my people. And I will call her who is not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, that they shall be called the sons of the living God. And that's us. We are those vessels of mercy that at one time we did not have. But because of God's plan for us, we can be called the sons of God. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, who did not seek salvation and a right relationship with God, obtained righteousness, that is the righteousness which is produced by faith, Whereas Israel, though always pursuing the law of righteousness, did not succeed in fulfilling the law. And why not? Because it was by, not by faith that they pursued it, but it was through works, relying on the merit of their works instead of their faith. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, Jesus Christ. As it is written and forever remains written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him, whoever adheres to or trusts or relies in him, will not be disappointed. Paul quotes three Old Testament passages in this letter to prove his point to the Jews who were rejecting Christ. And he tells them, that if God had not sent Christ, we would all be destroyed. And that last one was in uh, verse 29, when he said, And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Seboeth has left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have become like Gomorrah. So our hope without Christ, without that seed, without that promise, through the, through the lineage of Israel, we would have, have been destroyed just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Paul then talks about the present condition of Israel. and he, In verse 30, it says, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained a righteousness. Oops, excuse me, I just read that. My bad. This has been very confusing going back. Uh, to the other versions. So Paul speaks about the arrogance of Israel 
He talks about them being the keepers of the oracles of God, the ones that served in the temple, the ones that were called God's children. But he speaks it to their shame because it caused them to stumble over Christ. It caused them to lose um, what their lot was with, with God. And he emphasized the real reason that Israel was cut off, and it was because they did not seek him by faith. So I want to look at just a little bit um, about this predestining someone to salvation or, or being lost without choice before we close. Um, because I believe it's a doctrine that's taught in the world today that you're predetermined, you're going to be saved, or you're going to be lost, and there's not anything you can do about it. Um, but that is a false doctrine. And I believe the, lot, the Bible teaches that it is. We have to remember that when we're studying a chapter that seems to teach something that is contrary to the whole rest of Scripture, that we should look at it closely and cautiously, and that we should deal with those verses very closely. The wording in Romans 9, um, in verse 11, when it talks about, for the children not being born, nor having anything good or evil done, uh, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, regardless of what they did, does not deal with the individual salvation of Esau or Jacob, but it deals with the plan to bring Christ in the world through the lineage of Jacob and not Esau. Through the lineage of Abraham and Isaac and not Ishmael, but through Jesus. And that is the line of the Jews through whom God was full, would fulfill His purpose. This passage concerns Israel as a nation, and the nation of Israel as is made up of a lot of individuals. And you remember the promise that God told Abraham that your descendants are going to be uh, as the number of the, of the sands of the sea. And it was quoted in verse 27 and stated by Isaiah, the prophet. And of all these individuals, God did not say that they all would be saved. Therefore, um, they were not individually elected for that, just as you and I are not today. Um, if predestination to individual salvation was true, why would Paul have wished that he could have done something different for these people, yet knowing that they could still accept Jesus Christ? In verse 11, God used his foreknowledge spoken of in 1 Peter, the first chapter. If you want to turn there in verse 2, it says, elect or predetermined, right, or chosen, elect, according to what? The foreknowledge of God. God knows everything from the beginning to the end. He's the Alpha and He's the Omega. He knows how we are going to live our lives. But He does not make us live in a way that's contrary to our choices. In Romans, the ninth chapter, uh, beginning at verse 19 and through 21 is another uh, is another part of that that God has power over the clay. 
In his foreknowledge, God knew that Pharaoh would respond to Moses exactly how he responded. He knew that when he set those plagues up, that Pharaoh would rebel. We, we remember, you remember that when the first time that Moses came to him, he said, Who is God that I should obey? That was the kind of man that Pharaoh was. And God used him to show his power. God extends mercy to any person who will put their faith in Christ. We read that in several places of Scripture. It is the basis of the gospel that we have the ability to accept Christ as a son of God and believe that he died and arose. In Titus, the third chapter, beginning at verse 4, it says, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Christ Jesus, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Is there a choice there for you? I believe there is. You can accept it or you can, can deny it. But God does not force your hand. Ephesians, the second chapter in verse 14. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. I want to really notice that last phrase. We both, which means the Jews and the Gentiles, have access. We have the choice. We have an opportunity. You have that opportunity tonight. I hope that I haven't been too confusing in this stumbling around on my words. We all have an opportunity tonight to choose Christ. To choose Him and believe in Him that He was the Son of God, that He lived a perfect life, that He came and died and He rose again, and we have opportunity to be baptized uh, and to become his child. That's an opportunity that's available to us right now. If you've done that and you are struggling tonight with something that prayers of the church would help, and you would like to request that, if there's one of either class, we'd ask you to come forward as we stand and sing this song selected and have a seat on the front pew.